Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, welcome back to the show, friends. Today we have joining us from the great state of Pennsylvania, our friend, Dr. Pete Enns. How are you, Pete? Good, man. Thanks, Luke. Well, you know, I promised the people that we're going to have a tall, funny gentleman named Pete from the Boston area, and Pete Holmes had to reschedule. So yeah. the second best thing I could think of is you. I appreciate it. You're basically, you, your name's Pete. You're, I don't know if you're tall or not, but I think you're tall, and you've spent time in Boston, so you're basically the same I, person. That's not a bad second place. I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been asked to fill in for a comedian before? Nope. Are you excited about it? Nope. No? Do you have any... <laughs> Do you have any jokes you want to tell? Maybe <laughs> I'm going to be deadpan the rest of the time. It's <laughs> annoying me now, Luke. Well, hey, this is a first. You said I annoyed you in the first minute of the call. This is the first time you've ever admitted that. Usually it takes a lot well, longer. Usually the second minute, I know. You know, I was looking at um, our Skype history. Uh-oh. We used this on Skype. And... Um, we're not on think, Skype because you're, you don't have the internet connection still. But you don't. I works with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. It always cuts out when I talk with you. But uh, I think this is the sixth time I've been on your show. Is it really the sixth? I think so, yeah, because, yeah, wow. starting back June of 2014, six times. Wow. I feel like I should have got an anniversary present or something in June from this, this past year. I mean, that's a big deal. Um, how do you feel about six times on the podcast? I feel great. I just wonder how much your listeners care how many times I've been on this show. And they'll mm. probably just turn the dial or whatever you do to a podcast. <laughs> there's, there's actually no dials on phones these days. But true, wow. true story, true story. Yep. Someone showed up at my church, the church I'm a part of, uh, and said, I'm here because I got to know you on your podcast because I was Googling or looking up Pete Enns and... That happened. Met a person in real life because of this. That's cool. Yeah. It's wonderful, yeah. I mean, she didn't come back to church. She just, one time. Because <laughs> I wasn't there. Yeah, I think she was hoping you were going to show up. <laughs> Actually, what it was is I'm, I'm preaching through the book of Exodus, and your commentary is uh, the NIV application commentary. Yeah. I think is, is, is my go-to one, and I think she heard that, and she's like, I can't, I, I think this is too much Pete Enns. I think that's what she, she experienced. Yeah. <laughs> Very realistic. Cool. Okay. I saw that you just got your first copy of the 10th anniversary of your infamous book, Inspiration yeah. and Incarnation. That's a pretty big deal. Are you excited about that? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm pleased. I'm happy. You know, I think it's, I think it's wonderful um, that Baker, you know, wanted to do this. And, uh, you know, they, they approached me a couple of years ago and, um, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's satisfying when, you know, a book is, um, you know, honored like that. And, and I think it, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it makes me feel like I've accomplished something to help people, you know, cause I, you know, that's, that's what's most important to me there that, yeah. uh, people like the book enough and it, it helps them process things on their own journeys of faith. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I wrote it. So it's, it's, it's gratifying, you know, I won't lie to you. It's, it's sort of cool. How do, how do they determine which book gets a special 10th anniversary release? Do they tell you? I think decide, um, you know, they, they meet, I mean, publishers meet, committees meet, and they make those kinds of decisions. Probably. I, I actually don't know the, the, the process, how it actually happened, but I imagine somebody, maybe, you know, my editor there at, at Baker raised it at a meeting saying, listen, this has been a book we're, we're proud of and we feel it's important and let's, let's republish it as a second edition, a 10th anniversary edition. And, you know, maybe with a preface, a new preface and uh, some other material in there and, and uh, let's do that. And uh, apparently people said, yes. So there we are. What do you think is a greater accomplishment for your career? having a book re-released on a 10th anniversary or being on my podcast six times? Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have to talk to my lawyer before I answer that question. Yeah, but. that's. I mean, that's probably like saying, which of your daughters is your favorite one? I mean, that, that's too hard a question. I, I shouldn't have even asked it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but this 10th anniversary, there, there is some updated stuff 
to it? Did you add yeah, a... Well, here the updated stuff basically amounts to this, is um, there's a preface explaining like what we're doing with this 10th anniversary edition, and uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, I updated the bibliography slightly, um, you know, because it's not an academic book, strictly speaking, so it doesn't like have to be current, but I, I thought I'd put some things in there that have transpired in the last, well, actually 12 or 13 years since I actually started writing the book. You know, mm-hmm. it came out 10 years ago, but I started long before that. Um, and then a, a, a rather lengthy um, postscript, uh, I think it's about 6,000 words or so, which is a pretty you know, oh. decent um, where I talk about, you know, just here's why I wrote it. Um, here's what the book's trying to do. And, and I really, you know, rehearse some of the criticisms that came out. And I, and I talk about why I don't think they're good criticisms. And because I think they miss the point of what I'm doing. And, um, uh, you know, and, yeah. and you know, that's, that's pretty much what I do. So what, so. so what were some of the main criticisms that you got for the book? Well, um, let me see. I guess, uh, you know, one, you know, criticism that came up, I mean, there are a few of them, but I think one of them that is, is probably the least interesting is that, um, you know, Pete, there are really smart people that disagree with you. You must be wrong. <laughs> so, okay, and, that, yeah, that's elementary. I, I, Especially at Westminster, when, when I was still teaching there, I, I got that criticism, and I said, you know, yeah, <laughs> I disagree with them. Maybe they're wrong, right? This is how scholarship works. This is how people, when, when, they're, when they're engaged in writing books, you sometimes disagree with each other. Now, if everybody disagrees with you, it's probably a bad book. Do you, do you think underlying that question is the sense that Christians can't have a uh, multitude of opinions on biblical issues, that there isn't room for disagreement on, like, theological subject matter? For some, I think that's probably the case. Um, I think for others, it was more the case that they just didn't like the book. <laughs> and and any of straw you could grasp at um, is is fair game to make your end goal realize, which is we don't want this book. So, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to mention specific names, but just, you know, Don Carson wrote a review that was fairly negative. And, well, if Don Carson says it's wrong, it must be wrong, you know, that kind of thing. I don't mean to disrespect to Don Carson when I say that, but it's that kind of a mentality that um, I think was a pretty uh, prevalent but very weak argument. Another, another point was um, uh, things like, um, well, you know, you didn't cover everything, and you needed to do this, this, and this. And, you know, you can say that about any book. That's sort of like a, a, a blanket, yeah. you know, firebombing kind of argument that you could use for any book, especially a book that's somewhat programmatic, yeah. like Inspiration Incarnation is, and aimed at a, at a somewhat popularish kind of audience. You're not going to cover everything. And I think, you know, it's not a legitimate argument to say that you didn't cover these things that I felt should have been covered in a book like this, therefore it's not a good book. Yeah. Yeah, you I, write it. Yeah, you I, write another It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I wanted to, to um, and you know, you, you didn't really address all the good things about evangelicalism that sort of contradict you. In other words, you didn't take into account all the arguments, right? Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, um, no, because I'm not writing a book countering arguments in detail. I'm writing a book to people who already aren't convinced that an evangelical paradigm is convincing. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to give them the logical language about how to. Um, you know, navigate some things that are, you know, pretty much universally accepted among biblical scholars and aren't really controversial, but yet don't sit easily with an evangelical view of Scripture, and let's see where this goes kind of thing. So, Okay, so let's... First of all, I remember talking to Tony Jones, and there's some critique about his newest book, uh, Did, Did God Kill Jesus? And he, hey. got, he got the same critique, like, well, how come you didn't talk about Romans, whatever? He's like... Right. Because I'm writing a book, I can't. It's not an encyclopedia. I mean, you can only address so many things. But right. you just said that uh, some things that are commonly accepted by scholars that don't so, sit well with uh, evangelicals, modern evangelicals. Uh, mm-hmm. w- give, give me one thing that uh, that's probably most pressing in that area. Um. Yeah, I mean, several come to mind. The first thing that pops into my mind is that, you know, the New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, 
are doing it in a very first century Jewish way. Mm-hmm. It means it's very creative. Um, you know, the quasi-technical term is midrashic. It's, it's really bringing texts and grabbing them and bringing them into your world, which involves usually a very radical reinterpretation. Yeah. So in other words, Paul and the Gospel writers, for the most part, I mean overwhelmingly for the most part, when they, when they engage the Old Testament, they're not remotely concerned with, I want to make sure I'm true to what Isaiah meant. Yeah. Or what the author of Genesis meant. It's more like you're, you're using Scripture and bringing it into your current moment. That's almost a definition of what Jewish Midrashic exegesis is. And I see that all over the New Testament. And that affects how you think about the nature of the Bible, mm-hmm. right? You start having a Paul or a Matthew or a John um, interpreting the Bible in such a way that would keep them from getting a job at evangelical seminaries. No. And that's a problem. Yeah. And that's a problem that people notice. You know, so let's talk about it. Yeah. And that's, a, I think, a far healthier way to go about it than to try to fit what the New Testament writers are doing into our understanding of what biblical you know, context means. I. My dad is teaching a Bible class at the church he's a part of, and uh-huh. he's talking about your stuff, and he's using Paul's reference of Christ being the rock from, I think that's Corinthians, and yeah. uh, he's just trying to, like, this is a very, I mean, this is clearly what, what's going on here, it's important to do that, and so, obviously, there's a great deal of, uh, dare I say, consensus about that from most biblical scholars, when evangelicals hear that, is the response, wait a minute, that means that we can't really trust what they're saying or we can't really believe what the Bible says because they're using first century uh, typical approaches, i.e. midrash. Right. So how do you respond to that and say, no, no, you you still can trust uh, what's going on here even if they are using midrash? Well, see, the thing, trust is, I think, a code word, which means... um, I can't read the Bible on a somewhat propositional level anymore and bring those propositions into my world. Okay. And, and see, I think, you know, I, I would want to talk about what do you mean by trusting the Bible mm-hmm. and what do you trust it for? And usually I trust it for space-time historical information, right? Yeah. So, you know, and, that, and that's, a, that's a dominant um, motivation, I think, among, generally speaking, among evangelical scholars and, and lay people or pastors and, and, and what it means to handle the Bible right. So I, I would want to talk about that a little bit. So I, I won't concede the premise under the question, well, how can I trust the Bible then? I mean, I, I would get, I mean, depending on the context, I might get a little snarky and say, why are you trusting the Bible instead of trusting God, right? Where, is it, where do we place our trust? And how does the Bible fit into all that? And, and to me, uh, that's not an easy question to answer, like in a tweet or a bumper sticker. That, that's something that takes a lot of thought and a lot of patience and a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience. Because, you know, sometimes the answer is, I'm not exactly sure how it fits, but I'm okay. Because I don't have to have all these answers right now. And I'm mm-hmm. certainly not going to skew evidence to make this fit into a model that makes me comfortable. Or, the, or with which I am comfortable and familiar. Yeah, but what about the person who says, okay, my trust is in God, but the Bible is the best revelation of God that, that we have. And I understand who God is from the Bible, and so if I can't trust the Bible, then how do I know anything about the Bible, or, or about God? Yeah, I mean, I, I would, again, I mean, I'm mean, i not trying to be sort of Socratic here, but I would say, what do you mean by best revelation? Have you examined what you mean by that? Again, it, I mean, this hypothetical... Well, it really depends if I'm talking to if somebody's really hurting or if somebody wants to argue, right? There are different okay. kinds of people who might ask questions. Well, like, what if it's so. a genuine question? Like, I, I've, I've read the Bible a large majority of my life. I've heard it at church. I've been a part of a church, and the church always cares about the Bible. Bible seems to explain God to me. What else? What's the other best revelation? Do I have to watch the Burnett Bible series on ABC or, or Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ? I mean, what? What better way do I understand God than the Bible? Right, but you see there, if you start, if you're presented then, if, if that's your beginning point, mm-hmm. the church you've grown up with and that has genuinely helped you, and, 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 and God has genuinely moved you forward by virtue of being in this community, first of all, that's to be celebrated and embraced and loved, and that's mm-hmm. fantastic. 
topic, right? Yeah. That's not wrong. But if you start discovering on your own that the Bible is a lot more complicated and messy than you have been taught, mm-hmm. the question there is not, gee, you know, I thought I used to have this best revelation. I'm not sure of it. I can't trust it anymore. No. You might have to walk through that messiness. You might have to work through those complexities, and at the end of it, actually have a deeper trust in God than you had before yeah. because you passed through this stuff. Yeah. Right? It might actually be showing you something where, I'm, I'm, forgive me, see, I, I, I want to be careful how I say this because it can really come across the wrong way, and I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of this, but it may be that this hypothetical person you're talking about needs to move past, let's say, an adolescent grasping of Scripture and the nature of God and move further along in his or her journey of faith. Mm-hmm. So if you're describing what an adolescent view of Scripture is, yeah, is that this, uh, use the word prop- propositional, um, I'm just going to pretend like I know what you mean by that, um, but this uh, understanding that the writers mean the same things that we'd want them to mean, uh, and that it's just cut and dry. That's the Bible says it. Therefore, I believe it. Is that kind of an adolescent view of Scripture that you're trying to move past? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to think. I wish I hadn't used the word adolescent, but let's let's just keep using it. It's not baby, but it's um, entry level, fully developed and yeah. and, and um, mature. I guess maybe I'm, I'm keep saying the same thing. I don't really mean that, but um, uh, yeah. So I think that. Um, and I just lost your question because I was talking too much on the side here. So what, what was your question again, Luke? Well, okay, and I'm going to spin it a little bit here. But I've got a buddy who's, uh, who's a part of an you know, evangelical church, and he talks about how his church often reads the Bible like a fairy tale. And I, I wonder if that would kind of be in that same grouping of understanding what the Bible is. And your move, obviously the title of the book is Inspiration and Incarnation. A lot right. of people, when they understand your uh, understanding of how incarnational the Bible is, they question the validity and therefore the inspiration of it. And so moving from right. this, uh, if we want to call it an adolescent, beginner, entry level, understanding of the Bible, moving to a more substantive view of it, uh, like what are the specific things that we're moving? How do we... in okay. Well, I think, you know, if you, if you can look at the title of the book, Inspiration and Incarnation, um, using incarnation as a metaphor for how the Bible works. Mm-hmm. And looking at that from that point of view is something that I think is a more, is a fuller, more substantive understanding of how the Bible guides and how the Bible can be trusted. As opposed to, for example, um, Paul would never take the Old Testament out of context. Mm-hmm. God would never do that. Well, I don't know. I, I, that's exactly what I see happening, though, again and again and again and again. And I think that, let, that you know, let's, getting back to the, the, um, the adolescent view of Scripture, um, you know, the Bible acts a certain way. It's pretty flat. It's pretty predictable. They have some things that, that's weird stuff that happens, but basically there's one consistent meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have tensions, serious tensions. You certainly don't have contradictions. You don't have blatant historical inaccuracies, um, all of which, by the way, are there if you read the Bible in view of its ancient context and ancient intentions. Those things, you have different opinions, different points of view written by different authors at different times. It's rather obvious, I think. And... Um, you know, uh, so so I think um, maybe rather than saying an adolescent view, uh, a more of a neatly packaged Bible yeah. that and it works. And the reason, see, the reason why I use the word adolescent, I've heard other people use that who aren't even evangelical, who who say that it's like you know when you're graduating high school and you think you have life pretty much figured out, yeah. things more or less fit, and then you go to college, yeah, and then sort of like you're doing your laundry for the first time. Or you're, you're, and then you start to pay bills. You start life gets more complicated and fuller, but it also gets more significant. Yeah, it's more real. It gets textured. It gets you know three dimensional, right? And and I think you know allowing the Bible's various textures and various dimensions to be instead of presuming this packaged view, mm-hmm. the proper one, because of course we all know that's what God does, right? Yeah. Instead of doing that, I, th- I think that is a, a deeper view of the Bible, and it is unsettling. I get it. Mm-hmm. It's 
it can be unnerving. But you know what? Forgive me. I think God is unsettling and unnerving, yeah. right? I think those are bad things. I think those are good things. See, to have a, 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 um, to have a mature view of the Bible, and I would say a mature view of God, is not, I get it. I can see how it all fits. I've been around the block, and I've learned a lot, and I can see it, and it all makes sense, and here's how you answer all your questions, and here's you know, how, how these problem passages are easily solved. I think that's selling the Bible short. I think that's selling God short. I think that's selling the Spirit short. Yeah. I think the history of biblical interpretation, and even in time right now across the world, it, 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 it betrays the fact that the Bible is not the easiest book in the world to get your arms around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is difficult. That's why you have seminaries. <laughs> so <laughs> when I was, uh, a t- I think, 21, sorry, my first year of my MDiv, I had more confidence than I ever have before and since then about like my understanding of the Bible and ministry. And when I left my advanced intro to Old Testament class, first year seminary, I remember leaving my final, walking out on the grassy lawn towards my 1988 Honda Accord LX 5-speed, champagne-colored, in case you need the mental picture. And I was just like distraught, like I don't know anything. And like I I knew, I I thought I understood the Bible. I thought I had a bunch of verses memorized and I knew what was going on. And then I left that class and I was like, I don't, I don't know anything. And I like, and that's just from my experience is like the Bible's not nearly as neatly packed as I, as I think it was. And I I like the language of neatly packed. It's not as pejorative, but that's definitely kind of the idea. I, I remember hearing friends not too long ago say, well, we know the Bible doesn't contradict itself and we know the Bible does X, Y, and Z. And I think if we want to like really embrace the Bible for what it is and the complexity of it, you can't say we know the Bible is anything. The Bible is what it is. Let it speak for itself. <clears throat> Otherwise, we kind of just squeeze it together and we, we miss the beauty of it. And I think, I think behind it too, Luke, is it's a doctrine of God behind it where, as we all know, God's not going to try to confuse you, now is he? yeah. He's going to be clear. This is, this is like God's one shot to get through to you. It's a book. And he took care to superintend the writers, this and that. So as a basic fundamental assertion based on that premise, the Bible is not going to have contradictions. It's going to be clear. Yeah, there are going to be challenging things because God's challenging, but it's basically going to be fundamentally perspicuous, as the theologians say. It's going to be, you can see through it and you can see into it and it could be clear. Yeah. I, on one level... I, I actually don't disagree with that. I think there, you know, the Bible has clarity. It has accessibility to anybody, not just to scholars, but to normal people just sitting there reading it. But I think it's a very bad doctrine of God to presume, yeah, God is going to make sense to us right there. I, I can't look at the universe that we live in and say, yeah, we got it. Yeah, <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I just thought that. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, it's part of, I think, dishonoring the mystery of God and almost the unknowability of God in the way we typically know, which is through our minds and yeah. through our brains and through our process of, of you know, mental faculties. I'm not knocking at any of that, I think, all the time, right? But I, I just don't well, think God is fully well. apprehended. And, and um, you know, the Bible is... is uh, um, just it just doesn't fall into line that way, right? And 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 um, people discover that for themselves, and that's you know one reason why I wrote I and I because I, I was getting questions from students in class, and they needed they needed some answers for those questions. My, my or a pathway to yeah. think about, you know what I mean? So you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, before we get back to Pathway, I want to talk about journey stuff, which I know is a big motif that you love. But uh, my friend Richard Beck, experimental theology guy, um, who, uh, who, who's been on the podcast a bunch, and as a psychologist, experimental psychologist, his take is that the, the thing that influences how we read the Bible is the preexisting image we have of God. And so yeah. whatever image we have of God, we bring that to the text, and therefore that's how we understand the text because we want that text to fit into the image of God that we already have. Right. And so if we know God doesn't confuse us and we know God can't do X, X, Y, and Z, then of course the Bible is going to fit into that. And what your work has done for me is, is 
wait a minute, let's let the Bible be the Bible and don't force it to be something it's not. Yeah, and, and sort of, you know, discover. And I know that's not helpful to people when I say, it, like, you know, let's discover the Bible because the Bible is a source of doctrine. You have to preach from it, this and that. But again, I don't think it means, you know, the source of doctrine where it's obvious and doctrines never change. Yeah. Or, you know, preaching never changes. Or, you know, you know, the Bible is authoritative and we have to preach authoritatively so you can't have ambiguity in the text. Well, the problem is that you do have ambiguity in the text. Guess who recognizes the ambiguity? The entire history of Judaism. Yeah. You know, and I think that's something for us to think about, that there, and let's, let's add a, um, you know, at least one dominant Christian, you know, uh, community to that, the, the Orthodox Church. You know, they, 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 are, they more have at the forefront notions of the mystery of God and how that has to be front and center any time we think or speak about God. Yeah. And, you know? and when you understand the paradox, the tension, and the fact that you can't fit the Bible, and more importantly, you can't fit God into your nice, neat doctrines, is you understand that change does happen. And you, you, you understand that this is a journey, which I know you've, you've written about that a bunch. I think you, um, you recently just blogged about it. By the way, you, you've got a new blog. Which I do. We'll talk about that in a second. But on okay. that new blog, you, you, you write that journey is your favorite metaphor. Obviously, that goes hand-in-hand hand with this understanding of Scripture, right? Right. And, and I think, you know, getting back to Beck's point, um, you know, my view of the Bible and journey, a lot of that is affected just by my life. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's important to realize, too, that, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of a big fan of, you know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral yeah. or the Episcopal, you know, Episcopalian three legged stool in terms of like um, h- how you formulate theological knowledge. Right. It's 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 your experience is actually important. The Bible, obviously, your tradition and also reason. And those things work together. I know I know some interpret the Wesleyan quadrilateral like, well, the Bible's basic and then everything else sort of filters in. But I understand that, as others do, that those things are always working together. You know, as soon as you say things, well, okay, well, you got to start with the Bible. Do you realize how your experience, your tradition and your reason affect how you even read it? Yeah. And how you, uh, the questions you even bring to it, right? Because we're more than just heads with sort of the heart where Jesus lives, right? We're, we're, we're people, complex people that, you know, imperfectly understand and imperfectly reflect. Yeah. And the Bible is no guarantee that, you know, you're going to have the right information. And how do I know that? Because it doesn't do a very good job of that because Christians throughout history have had major disagreements about how to read it mm-hmm. and what from it, right? Yeah. I look at the Bible more, I mean, to use other metaphors, it's, it's sort of more like a means of grace. It's, 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 it's a thing of discipline, too, where you, in community and also maybe individually, read and understand and let the stories filter through and... You and it shapes your imagination. It shapes your thinking, mm-hmm. your feelings, and you can also argue with it. Yeah, which is another wonderful aspect of the Jewish legacy, as opposed to much of the Christian history of interpretation. That you, you, it's okay to read the Bible and say, "I don't even know what this is doing here," and this seems so inconsistent with what God says over here. Okay, run with that. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something there worth listening to and worth um, something to teach you. Rather than presuming, well, we all know how God works, you never do that. The problem is there's an apparent contradiction. Or the problem is that there's sin in my life, so I can't see it right. Right? In these kinds of games, it's it's, it's like, can we step back and just take a breath here for a second and just, maybe we're just down the wrong road entirely when we start talking like that. Okay, so let's go back to the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Okay, so yeah. if, if we're going to make a decision, we don't want to just say, well, I just read the Bible and that's it because we're more complicated than that. The way that the brain works, it's 
uh, as Hume and, and others have said, you know, you, we follow our passions and then we use our logic to substantiate the, the passions and the feelings we already have. And so we, yeah. it, it's, we're more complicated than just saying it's just the Bible. And so Wesley had his point about we want to use the Bible and tradition, our experience and logic or reason. And so this is all part, those four things make up the, the stool. And so how, how does one actually go about that in a explicit way to say, okay, I'm making a decision and it's the Bible and it's my tradition and it's my experience and the reason. Have, have you seen models of people doing this? Of doing what? Like making decisions based on this? Well, just playing all their cards. And like as a, especially in a church setting where they're trying to say, I'm making decisions based just on the Bible and saying that's a little bit simplistic. Let's put all the different motivators on the table. Have you seen examples? Uh, obviously, I know that you're an academic, but you, I think you're still a Christian. So maybe in like Christian uh, examples of people trying to actually live out what Wesley was pointing towards. Well, I think you know when you say people living it out, I think you're we're right away talking in terms of uh, some type of community and not an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, the tradition part of the quadrilateral implies something beyond yourself. I, I might just as well put community slash tradition there, right? Mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I think that, you know, seeing that play out has to be done on a larger scale. There are denominations, for better or worse, I mean, you know, we don't need to get into, you know, who's right or wrong, who may have made decisions about this is the right way to go. Mm-hmm. whether it's in sexuality or whether women can preach in churches, you know, from one extreme to the other. And, and that's, that is what the people of God have always done. Mm-hmm. They've always had to make, let's say, community wisdom decisions where you never just say, we don't care about the Bible. No, the Bible's always there. The question is, what does it mean to live this out here and now? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just think we're, we're always called to do that. And, you know, if you want a biblical proof text, I would say much of the Bible works that way when you have, you know, the author of Chronicles recasting and rewriting Israel's history and because times have changed and a different word of God is needed for that community. And you want to make David look a little bit better. So. If, if I had a choice, I'm having Chronicles write uh, the Chronicler write my life story, not First and yeah. Second Samuel. I mean, if I get a choice, I'm doing the same thing. So I'm right. no shame in that game. Not at all. Okay. No. So let's talk about your new blog or your new website. Is it a blog? Whatever it is, it's a website with a blog website on it. Website has a blog in it. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, it's PeteEnds.com. It's not Peter. Uh, I that interpret was- that. Let me tell you what it means. I, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to tell you the truth. It comes across to me as. Pete, you're just a regular old guy. Just around the corner, Pete, he's going to help me understand the Bible. Peter, it's like, I'm, I'm a professor. I'm sophisticated. Pete, he's just a buddy of mine. That's, uh-huh. exa- that's what you're trying to do, wasn't it? Well, I'm not trying to do it. That's true. <laughs> and, um, no, actually, I just, Peter Ends was taken. But, you know, I got a, um, <laughs> a Facebook message from one of my readers who says, I can't, your, your new website's blocked from my, um, from my work. And I said, we shouldn't be reading <laughs> blogs at work anyway, but in his job, he, but um, I said, why not? He says, because, you know, Pete ends, you've got the word pet, and you've got the word teen. Oh. It was interpreted by whatever filter was going oh, as a child pornographic site or something. Hmm. So um, that should make some people happy. Pete ends so, site anyway. brought to you by Subway. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, that's awkward. Um, so. Weird. Yeah. So, so Pete, and it's also <laughs> you can also access it um, the Bible for normal people. That's a that, come up with it. That's a quite a cumbersome uh, description right there of or URL address the Bible for normal people dot com. Um, <laughs> but that is like the Bible for normal people. That is actually the tagline. You, you're trying, right. and so your work, like the Bible, t- the Bible tells me so. Your most recent book. Yeah. It's like you're taking academic, technical, historical. Uh, complicated information, and you're trying to make it uh, accessible for normal people, right? Is that what you're trying yeah, to do? And, and so what, right? And also, there, what's the payoff of even paying attention to this stuff? But yeah, that's that's pretty much it's. You know, I I made the decision actually, and and another reason why I'm sort of pleased with you know this 10th anniversary edition is because 
when I wrote this book, it was in the midst of a decision that I was making. This is going back to probably like 2002 or something, you know, when I first started thinking about this, um, that I, I want to write books that more than just, you know, a, a, a scholarly community will want to read. Yeah. I, I just, that was a conscious decision on my point, on my part. And I think what, what has happened with, you know, this book, but also, you know, I wrote, I co-wrote a book with uh, Jared Bias, um, Genesis for Normal People, mm-hmm. you know, years ago. And the Bible tells me, so I have another book coming out in the spring. Um, I've just moved further along um, writing books that are accessible to people who would not normally want to have any interest in reading books that, you know, use in-house lingo and things like that. So that's a to do that, but that's what I want to do. So. Yeah, and you've done it. I, I remember giving, uh, and I, I might have told you this already, I gave your book to one of my friends from, from our church, and uh, she grew up in church, never heard any of the stuff that you were talking about before, and she just absolutely loved it. And she's, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't have a degree in Bible. She's a, a mom and uh, who full-time job is with the kids, and she loved it. And exactly. so that's what you're, you're doing. You're doing good stuff. Now, I got a couple questions. I sent out a message to my friends on the old social media saying, hey, I'm talking to you in a couple hours. I got some questions mm-hmm. for you. So you ready? We're going to do some rapid-fire ones. I'll try. Go ahead. Why not? <laughs> okay. Um, which story appeals, resonates, or convicts Pete ends the most? This is from Patrick from Alabama. So, okay. okay. Patrick Alabama. Um, I think that that answer will change depending on the season of life. Um, but I do very much resonate with um, – what Walter Brueggemann calls this counter-testimony of Scripture, was, which is captured in Ecclesiastes and Job and Lament Psalms. Okay. Because they're very honest, and within those books you actually see argument with other portions of the Bible, which to me models something very important, that God invites our honesty and is not put off by it, in fact models it, in the Bible itself. So, so that, that, to me, that's, that's, a, that's a treasured part of the Bible. And, and I actually, to be honest, I hate poetry. Never like poetry. But hmm. the older I get, the more I just feel the rhythm of the Psalms and the, the, you know, the, the, the bracing honesty that you see in many of them. And I think it's, just, it's great to have this stuff in the Bible. So you, you lean more towards the poetry in the Bible more now? Do you think it's because you're moving past the uh, like the literal uh, historical like that doesn't give you ultimately the answers for the questions that really haunt you the most? I think so. In those books, what we're seeing is, let's say, religious theological reflection. Um, And of course, you see that in the narrative stories as well. But I think on a more. Okay, you read the you know story of David, right? Whatever you know, or 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 you know Manasseh, or just pick some king from the Old Testament, and you know you look at it and say, well, what's the moral of the story, so to speak, for me? Yeah. And it's you know the moral is I don't think there is one for you. I think this is describing why Israel went to exile. Yeah, and and I think um, it's not those stories are not there to be moralized, um, but. You know, with with the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job and some other places, I think what we what we see there is Israelite reflections on their own story. Hmm. And to me, I can I connect with it for that reason a little bit more. And and um, you know, okay, I, let me put it this way: a question. This is still very much on this question from Patrick, right? From yeah, Alabama. Patrick from Alabama, um, of course, yeah. Where else? Um, but, you know, I, I just, I look, uh, okay, sometimes I say, as many, 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 many people I know say, this, sometimes God just doesn't make sense, hmm. right? And that's what Job's saying. That's what Kohelet and Ecclesiastes is saying. That's what many lament psalms are saying. Yeah, I know how it's supposed to go. I've read the Bible. I get it. I don't see it. Hmm. Where are you, God? Right? Or are you really worthy of trust? Are you even there? 
how much longer do we have to wait until you show up like you said you would, mm-hmm. right? I think those are, um, actually, I think those books, the reason why I like them so much, they add a depth of, this is not a superficial book. Real <laughs> the Bible is not a superficial book. It is deep and layered and textured and, and deeply honest and reflective and helpful for that reason. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, one of the things I've learned, uh, it seems like the, the sermons that make the most impact in my life and many other people's lives are not the sermons that give you as new information as much as the sermons that put into words how you already feel. Right. And I think right. those books, like they, they express the true human experience that, that most of us, if we're honest, have, have gone through and have experienced. And uh, yeah, so that makes sense. You like those. Peter, mm-hmm. he doesn't like the happy stuff. He likes the raw stuff. He's not watching some sitcom on network TV. He's watching some dark and grimy HBO show. That's I like what, the, yeah. Bible, yeah. Okay. Next one. This is uh, Richard. Uh, I got him Richard from uh, Ambler, PA. I don't know oh, where that wow. is in Pennsylvania. Is that near you? Do you know where Ambler is? Just a very few miles from here, yeah. yeah. Richard, oh. hey. Yeah, thanks for sending a message to your neighbor, Pete, via the podcast. You could have walked. He could have just walked to your house and asked you this, but luckily he doesn't have your address. He actually might be outside the window right now. So let's just... I have a dog who rips people's throats out, so that's not a problem. Good. Okay. Well, Richard, uh, I don't think you're a stalker. Pete might think you're a stalker. I'm glad you asked the question. Your question was, most people read only the New Testament or even just the four Gospels. Why should we read the Old Testament? Oh, Pete, this has got to be right down the center of the plate for you. Why should people read the Old Testament? No, Why? not really. I think that's a very good question because... You like that I question. Mean, Here's one reason why that's a very good question, um, because see, I mean, theologians talk about continuity and discontinuity mm-hmm. between the Old and New Testament, and they're both there and they're both significant. And I think the continuity is very sort of like big, large themes or something, like kingship or wisdom or creation. But in terms of the text of the Old Testament, see, this is, again, where the New Testament use of the Old is such a profound and important and maybe unsettling dimension for us that um, a dimension of the Bible for us because um, the way they forge Old and New Testament together, these New Testament writers, again in a very Jewish way, it's very creative, they transform the text, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Some people would say they mess with it and they, they do eisegesis, right? They, they, they bring meaning into the text rather than take it out, which I think they do do quite often. And the question then arises, well, so why read the Old Testament off? That's what you have to do to it, to make it fit with Jesus, hmm. right? I think it's a valid question to ask that. And, and I would answer it, um, I, I do answer it by saying, you actually don't appreciate, first of all, the movement, the drama of the event of Jesus and then the early decades of the church, which includes the gospel writers. You don't really appreciate that without knowing the narrative itself. It's like reading the last three chapters of, you know, you know, Lord of the Rings yeah. without being everything else. Um, even though, you know, those earlier books don't give you the solution, they don't give you the answers, you're not caught in the grip of no. the imagination. And I, I mean that not as untrue, but just gripping you more than just your head. Yeah. You, you don't feel that without going through the process, right? Now, I, I do want to answer that in a second way, too, because, you know, that's still rather as negative. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the, the Old Testament almost has, like, sort of negative value mm-hmm. to see what the Old Testament does differently, you know. And, and I think that's, that's true, but that's only part of the story. I think the other way I'd answer it is, is sort of what I said to the, to the um, previous question. The Old Testament does something that the church today desperately needs, but you don't find very much in the New Testament itself, which mm-hmm. is, how do you go on living your life day after day, year after year, and, and generation after generation, and century after century? What does it mean to follow God faithfully? When you have an Old Testament that's written over, let's say for arguments like roughly, you know, maybe like a seven, eight, nine hundred year period, that moves us from maybe before the monarchy, some of the earliest portions of the Old Testament are pre-monarchic, maybe going back to 12th century or so, maybe even earlier, and then into the late post-exilic period of the 5th century, 4th century, some even say 3rd century, 
like portions of the book of Daniel. When you've got a Bible that's maybe even a thousand years old, it reflects the long haul. It reflects a long period of time where people have to struggle from one generation to another, saying, God hasn't shown up for a very long time. How do we live? What does it mean to be faithful to him? The New Testament is very, very different. It's written over a much shorter period of time. Not only that, but for the most part, it's written from what we might call a triumphalist point of view, that the climax of the covenant has come. Jesus is here. Jesus has been raised, and he's coming back. And guess what? It's not going to take long. Right? The New Testament writers, I mean, we don't need to go into detail. We require enough time. But the New Testament writers, it's really hard to find New Testament writers who say, we're going to be here a while. Yeah. This could take hundreds of years. Hmm. They were expecting, like, you know, listen, don't marry, Paul said. <laughs> you know, just, just get ready because this, this liftoff is going to happen at some point fairly, fairly soon. And, and when, when the end is so close when you have an eschatology that has an imminent end, you're not thinking, how long, O oh Lord? Right? You're not thinking, um, why are things not working out? It's such a struggle to stay and to maintain the faith. You get that in the Psalms. You get it in Job. You get it in Ecclesiastes. You get it in some of the prophets. You don't really get that in the New Testament because of the type of literature the New Testament is. So I think in that respect, from a spiritual point, most Christians, you know, we don't live in triumphalist mode like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We don't live that way. We live like, I'm going to retire in 20 years and I don't have any money. <laughs> and where's God? And how come, you know, this is now the third generation of alcoholics in my family. Yeah. And where's God now, right? That, that question comes up in the long haul. It doesn't come up in that anticipation of an imminent end. Yep. Well, and I well, the Old Testament is very, very important, at least for that reason. Well, I think Richard from Ambler, PA, is going to go home. He's going to start reading his Jewish Bible. He's going to read the Old Testament. Cause Maybe. Or come to my house and hurt me. Yeah, he might. Either one. Uh, we're cool with. Um, I mean, hey, you've been I, on six times. I live so in North Dakota. Um, <laughs> okay, here's another I'm one. right Canada. we got one more. One more question. This is from David from Anaheim. Um, do you think he's a – I bet he's a baseball fan. Do you think he's a, a, an Angels fan? Probably. He's from Anaheim. I guess you have to be. Yeah, Mike Trout is slumping, though. He's been terrible for, like, August. He's hitting, like, 160-something. He struck out 21 times this Yeah, month. that's not good. Luckily, Pujols has kind of turned it around. Uh, yeah. We thought that might be the, the biggest albatross of any contract in Major League Baseball at one point, but looks like he's turning that around. Uh, but David's sure. question was not about baseball, shockingly. Um, he had a question about the, uh, the podcast that we had with our favorite Pentecostal. Chris oh, Green. Yeah. You remember that one? That was a fun one, wasn't it? Life, yeah. Life-changing. Okay, so here's uh, David from Anaheim's question. Uh, he, this is you, um, Pete, spoke of learning a phrase in seminary that indicate, indic- indicated, it's a tough word for me to say, that the goal dictates the interpretation. For example, what kind of Christianity has a literal reading of Genesis created? Do you remember saying that phrase, Pete? A phrase in seminary that indicated that the goal dictates the interpretation. Does that sound like something you learned in seminary? Um, no, I do remember, though. Um, I, I know, I'm not sure if, if he's referring to a Christotelic interpretation of the Old Testament, um, which a, is that, you know, our understanding of Jesus affects how we go back and read the Old Testament which is what I say Paul is doing. I didn't learn that in seminary, that term. That term actually came from discussions once I joined the faculty with a couple Hmm. of my colleagues. Um, So I'm I'm not sure if he means that. Um, I do remember um, a a colleague of mine, while I was still a seminary student, writing an article comparing how the New Testament uses the Old with the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they did it. Okay. And and he said uh, basically something like this. He said... The goal determines the method. Okay. Rather than, let's say, a, a more standard evangelical way of thinking that the method, your exegetical method, will drive you to a goal. My, my, my first professor and then colleague later was saying, actually, no, it's our goal that affects how we read. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament does the same thing the Dead Sea Scrolls do. Maybe he's referring to that. I, but I don't recall anything else, to be honest. I bet he was talking about that. That sounds very plausible. I think yeah. that's what David from Anaheim was talking about. Okay. That's good. Okay. 
the concept. I mean, it really is 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 part and parcel of what they call Second Temple Judaism, and and how the sacred text had to be, you know, the, the technical term actualized. It had to be brought into your present. Mm-hmm. And this is a text, the Old Testament, that is centered on law and keeping that law in the land, which includes sacrifice, where you have to be in the land, because that's where the temple is, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's so much of the Old Testament that really is centered on having the land and possessing it and not losing it. And so when you have a Judaism that has left the land or come back to the land and it's still run by foreign powers or then in AD 70 are cast out of the land, um, you have to think differently about how to relate to your scripture. And so your goal, your, your current moment, your setting affects how you read. That is, in my opinion, frankly, that's hermeneutics 101. That's a basic lesson you learn from history and from reading the Bible itself. Right? That's so I, I think it's a valuable thing to remember, a valuable thing to keep in mind that that is part of the tradition of reading the Bible well, is h- how does this text, um, h- how is it brought into your current moment, your current context? And of course, I'm, forgive me, I'm going on here. Then the question people come up, and I understand this, well, then how do you know if you've gone too far? What's your standard for interpretation? And my answer is, that's a good question. But the fact that you asked that question doesn't invalidate what I just said. It just means we have something to talk about. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's good. Pete, I think uh, Richard, Patrick, and David are all going to appreciate your answers. Hope so. Good answers to good questions. We appreciate it from everyone. Your book, Inspiration and Incarnation, you can pre-order it now. When is it actually available? You can pre-order it. Um, I, I was told that... Um, it is being shipped from the warehouse August 25th to stores and um, be available in stores September 22nd. Um, I'm not sure if store includes online, like Amazon, whatever. Um, but I was also told that it's very likely that the book will be available a week earlier. So let's. I'm going to say, for argument's sake, around September 15th, it should be. That's nice. Purchasable or deliverable or something like that. You know, it's a coincidence. Your book what? ships out of the warehouse August 25th. That's my birthday. You want to know why? Really? Because your book, your book is a present for all of us. Look at that. <laughs> We're going to end on that note. Thanks, Pete. Uh, no, no, no. No? You have to buy it. Oh, no. I just thought my present. nice... Well, it, if you steal it, then it's a present. But... That's okay. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, we'll buy it and give it to someone else and let it be a present for them. True, true. <laughs> Buy several cups. Buy a, buy a bushel. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. All right. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.